This sermon was preached by Caleb Bunch, head pastor and church planner of Redeeming Grace Fellowship in Massapequa, New York. Redeeming Grace was planted in 2015 and is seeking to reach central Nassau County with the gospel. You can find sermons from this series and many others at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We're going to start today at verse 20. We are starting exactly the same place that we started last week. We are going to cover the exact same verses. Uh, but I think that it's a good thing for us to stay here and to continue soaking up what this passage has to teach us. So uh, before we read the text, I would like to introduce you to someone. Well, actually, I would like to figuratively introduce you to someone because he's been dead for about six years now. Uh, his name was Antony Flew. I'm curious, does anyone here know who Anthony Flew is. Have you heard that name? We have one. We have one. I'm, I'm just, I'm amazed that this man's name is not more bantied about, but I will explain why that is here in a few moments. Anthony Flew was a philosopher. He's a very famous philosopher, actually, in the 1900s. Uh, he studied at Oxford University. Actually, one of his professors was C.S. Lewis. He became a very well-known writer. His works were uh, very broad, but they all pretty much focused around the main subject of the arguments against the existence of God. He was a pronounced atheist. In 2004, one author described his influence in this way. He said, within the last hundred years, no mainstream philosopher has developed the kind of systematic, comprehensive, original, and influential exposition of atheism that is to be found in Anthony Flew's 50 years of anti-theological writings. In terms of developing anti-Christian material, anti-theistic material, his name is often bantied around with the likes of Bertrand Russell and John Paul Sartre. This man was a very intelligent man, but he used his mind constantly to try to create arguments against the existence of God. In fact, he wrote 30 full-length books opposing the existence of God. Most notable among his works are The Presumption of Atheism and his treatise that made him famous, which is called The Theology and Falsification which, by the way, is the most widely reprinted philosophical publication of the last century. This is Anthony Flew. He also authored a book called God and Philosophy. This book, uh, God and Philosophy, became a staple in philosophy classes all around the world, not just in Great Britain, but all around the world. That was re basically required reading for a uh, generation of philosophy students. Uh, this is Anthony Flew, and now that you've met, I would like for you to consider him and we're going to come back to him later on in today's message. Let me read for you the text. Look at verse 20, chapter 3, verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, 
he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who, were, who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Today, we are going to cover a little bit more of this passage than we did last week, but this week we are not going to finish this passage. This chapter, this part of the chapter, is rich in theology. It is rich. It teaches us much about Mariology, the theology behind Mary. It teaches us about demonology, which is self-explanatory. It teaches us, most importantly, about Christology, the nature of Jesus himself. And there is so much in this text that I've divided again. Next week, we will come back to this passage. So today, I would like to focus on two things. Point number one, logic. And point number two, grace. Let's pray once again that the Lord will open our eyes to understand the text this morning. Father in heaven, what a wonderful gift that you have given us your word. You have given us truth that we can come to it and we can be challenged by it. We can be amazed by it. And by your Holy Spirit, we can be convicted and be changed uh, for the rest of our lives. Father, I pray that for those of us in this room, every one of us will walk out of this room different than we came in, that we will grow closer to Jesus Christ. For those who do not know you, I pray that that would mean they would be saved today, that today would be their day of salvation. Father in heaven, I pray that this text would be meaningful to us, that this text would not be something that we glance at and pass over, that we would be able to focus on it and learn from it. Father, please, we need you in this time. Please work by your spirit today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Point number one, logic. I would like to dig in here a little bit into this text so that we can determine exactly what the Pharisees actually describes in this situation. They may be Pharisees, but uh, they don't are they are not designated the Pharisees here. Usually when uh, Matthew writes about them, he writes about them as the scribes of the Pharisees. So these are not the highest ranking officials of the Pharisees, but they are among their crowd. But here, what exactly are they accusing Jesus of doing? I'd like to read to you once again. And slowly, so we can process what they are saying in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. The scribes have accused Jesus of utilizing the power of the devil, 
rather than the power of God. This is a huge accusation. To be specific, they state that he is possessed by Beelzebul. We could spend the entire day just focusing in on what that word means, Beelzebul, but I'll just try to simplify it here for you. Beelzebub, with a B at the end, was a pejorative name that the Israelites used. It was a, it was a mockery of the term Beelzebul. Beelzebul was a reference to an old god that was around during the Old Testament. Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies, which, by the way, is where the famous children's novel that is quite disturbing gets its name. Beelzebul is a very serious way to reference it. Beelzebub is a pejorative, more mocking term that they would occasionally use. However, both of these terms are used interchangeably at this time to reference Satan. Now, Beelzebul means the prince of demons, and it's referencing Baal, Baal of the Old Testament, who is himself the prince of these demons. Now let's think about that for just a moment, how disgusting and odious that accusation is. The primary false god of the Old Testament was Baal. And here they are saying that Jehovah God, the Son from eternity, the perfect holy God, Jesus Christ, is filled with the power of the worst enemy that God has in the entire Old Testament. That is disgusting. And as they come forward with this accusation, it is amazing to us to look back and see that what they are saying is Jesus is filled with the power, not of God, but of Satan. Please allow me to step outside of our text for just a moment to uh, move over into the book of John. And I think this will be helpful to us because as we heard in our Old Test- or, I'm sorry, New Testament reading today, uh, this is incredibly ironic what is being said here. Because in John chapter 8, it says these words. Uh, the, the Pharisees, by the way, have come to him to confront Jesus. Here's what they say. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Now, pause for a second. What they are saying here is they accuse Jesus of being conceived in a sinful way, illegitimately. And they are saying that their father is God. Our father is perfect and sinless. Your father is sinful. That's quite ironic, just to start. Now, let's see how Jesus responds. He says to them, if God were your father, you would love me. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Now, from our perspective, that's a really good question. Why can't they get what he's talking about? And he answers the question for us. He says, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And he continues by saying to them, you are of your father, not God, like they had just said. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. How ironic. Here in Mark chapter 3, they are accusing Jesus of being filled with the power of the devil. That Jesus is trying to accomplish the works of the devil. And in reality, what Jesus is going to tell them at a later event is that actually, you are the ones who are filled with the desires of the devil. You are the ones who are working against God. You are the ones who are trying to carry out demonically devised schemes. Now just pause for a moment and consider this accusation as if you were a member of the crowd. You're not from this area. 
You're not from Capernaum, but you hear about Jesus, the healer, Jesus, the teacher, Jesus, the miracle worker, and you get a cold. It's not life-threatening, but it's something that you're annoyed by. So you decide to travel the four or five days to this place, because remember, in these days, uh, medicine was not what it is today. You did not get over illnesses as quickly as you do now. You travel the four or five days that it takes you to get to Jesus, and you you desire to be healed by him, and you get close to him. In fact, you get in the same room with him, and you're like third in line. You're close to being to the point where you can ask Jesus to heal you of your illness. And all of a sudden, the scribes come in, and they accuse Jesus of being filled with the power of the devil. That would be concerning. That would be shocking to you. As a member of this crowd who is seeking to be healed, you would wonder, if he touches me, am I going to be filled with the devil? What about all those other people who have been healed? Are, are they now filled with the devil too? Is this whole thing a game? No. This would have been confusing for people, but Jesus responds in a very helpful way. I want you to focus in, and and this is going to be a big part of the sermon today, on the way that Jesus responds using simple, basic, reasonable logic. He could not use a miracle for evidence here. Now imagine these scribes come into the room and they say, you're filled with the power of the devil. And if he were to say, look out the window at that tree over there, I'm going to destroy it and make it disappear. And then poof, it was gone. That would in no way prove that the power was not from the devil. Any miraculous power that he were to perform at that point would not prove his point that the power is from God and not from Satan. Instead, he uses something that God has gifted to all humankind. Logic. He just explains a very logical response about how their argument is completely invalid. And here's what he says. He does it by speaking in two parables. Let's consider the first. It's found in verses 23 through 26. It says, And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, That kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Let's just pause there and consider this first parable that Jesus speaks. I grew up in Kansas. I grew up in Kansas where there's not that many universities. There are two major state universities, Kansas University and Kansas State University. Most of the college students who uh, go through extended education go through one of those two schools. Now, people usually have allegiance to one or the other. If a family were to have allegiance to both, when a household had allegiances to both colleges, they would put up a flag in front of their house at times, which had on one side of it the picture of a Jayhawk, and on the other side a picture of a purple wildcat, representing the mascots from both schools. And on that banner it would read, A House Divided. I saw tons of those growing up. But what Jesus is saying here is not merely a matter of preference over something as silly as college mascots or football teams. What he is speaking about here is something far more dramatic. Let me try to explain it in this way. Imagine if for some reason I was able to come into trillions of dollars and I was to become very, very wealthy. 
Wyoming, by the way, is the least populated state in the United States, even though it's the sixth largest state. Well, I was, I was going to, I decide, I'm going to use this money, I'm going to purchase most of that state, and I'm going to develop it into a massive superstructure of a city. And before anyone moves into that place, I, I build it, I plan it perfectly, I get the road system down, I get the buildings up, I get skyscrapers and housing developments, and I'm ready to open this place so that people can begin moving in, and this will be the best designed city in the world, best place for business in the world. No traffic because the road systems are perfect, and it's not an island, so there's no tunnels or bridges. This would be the greatest city in the world, and then the night before we decide to have people move in, the largest skyscraper in the middle of the city explodes. The FBI is concerned that there's terrorist activity involved, so uh, they don't allow us to move people into the city. The next day, another si- another large building in the middle of the city explodes. Now they're fairly certain this must be terrorist activity. And as the days go on, every single building and every single large structure that has been put in place crumbles to the ground as it is under attack from some unknown individual. Then... One day, the FBI catches this individual, and they put him in handcuffs, and they put him in an interrogation room, and they say to him, you know what? We think we know what's going on here. We think that you were hired by Caleb Bunch to destroy the city. That is absurd. I have spent my life building this city. I have spent my wealth building the city. I have put all of my effort into building the city so that it might be something great. And then this man destroyed it and you are accusing him of being on my team? That guy who's the enemy, who's the terrorist, he would be offended. Wait, 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 wait. What? You think I'm working for him? I'm trying to destroy him. Now, that's a a little bit of a backward scenario here, but consider what's going on. Jesus has waged an all-out war against the devil in Galilee. He has gone in and torn down the strongholds. As it says, he came to destroy the works of the devil. It is absolutely absurd to think that this massive attack on the kingdom of Satan is actually in some way helping Satan. Satan is not divided. Satan is a fool, but he's not an idiot. He knows that his own destruction is coming. He is not trying to speed up that destruction in any way. That's why we see the demons crying out to Jesus, things like, what have you to do with us, Jesus? We know who you are. As we see, we will see later on, they are pleading with Jesus not to punish them before their time. Satan is not seeking to speed up his own demise. This is not something as minor as the choice of a college team or the flavor of ice cream that your house gets. A house divided here is a house divided on complete, not even allegiances. We're talking about truth and holiness and righteousness and the complete opposite that is to be found in the demonic world. Jesus says the devil is not divided against himself. Satan is not divided against himself. I am his enemy. That's a very important place to start. Jesus is declaring by saying that he is the enemy of Satan and the destroyer of Satan. He is saying that he is on God's side. But let's continue to the second parable because that will help us to develop our understanding of what Jesus is saying. He says, starting in verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, 
in this parable, Satan is the strong man. He is the one who is currently abiding in the house, and he is the one who must be bound. And what Jesus is saying is that in order for that man's house to be plundered, you first must tie him up. Jesus is saying that he has gone in and bound the strong man. Jesus notes his own strength, and in doing so, notes his own purpose. This is really important. Consider that in saying this, he is saying that the devil has no power against him. Now, by using this metaphor, this allegory here uh, in the parable that he is going to go in and bind up the strong man, consider what that means. Who is able to overcome the power of the devil? Who is able to conquer and who is able to bind up Satan? These scribes would have known that that is not something any human is able to do. This is supernatural, and the only way that could happen is if he is saying that he himself is on par, in power, with God. Jesus is noting his strength and his purpose, which is to bind the devil and plunder him. He's making this claim, which is so important for us to know, by saying that the devil cannot fight back, he cannot argue, he cannot win. He is bound by Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, highlights this fact when it says that he, speaking of God the Father, disarmed the rulers and authorities, speaking of the demons, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, the demons, in him. In who? In Jesus. He is the one being referenced here. Jesus has put them to open shame. This is an incredible thing that we see Jesus have such power and authority on par and in equality with God because he is God. Jesus used these short stories to once again display his divinity to the people who are doubting him. Now I'd like to point out that God desires for us as people, especially us as Christians, to use logic. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, God says through Isaiah to the people of Israel, Come, let us reason together. Let me explain what that does not mean. It does not mean that God was calling them to a table so they could barter, so that they could compare notes so that God might learn something from them and that they might learn something from God. No, God has brought them to the table to tell them this is truth. And when he says, come let us reason together, what he is saying is, come hear truth and be reasonable. Listen to it and consider it and use your reason. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, Paul writes these words. For what can be known about God is plain to them, speaking about mankind, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, not just clearly presented, by the way, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, the world, mankind, are without excuse. This is a really interesting fact. God has created the world, he has created the universe in such a way that he expects us to use our logic, our mind, our reason to recognize the fact that there is a creator. It declares the fact that there is 
intrinsically in the world, we can see his nature, his divine power presented in everything that is all around us so that we are without excuse. God expects us to use our minds. He expects us to use logic. He expects us to use reason. The most logical presentation of any, any information that you will ever read in your life is the book of Romans. Law schools here in the United States, in fact, all of the Ivy League schools that were started earliest here in the United States used to use the book of Romans to teach law students how to perform law. Not because it's a book about law specifically, but because it's a book that teaches you logic and how to make perfect airtight arguments. Here, God is given us a book that is perfectly logical because he expects us as readers, as human beings, to be able to understand the logic that is being presented. Why would God give us logical information if he does not expect us to be logical? So why am I belaboring this point? Perhaps you're here and you're thinking, well, that's obvious. Everyone knows that. Logic, good. Yes. Well, that's not how every Christian has treated logic. That is not how every agnostic or atheist or any other religion has treated logic. In fact, in our time, my generation is a generation that does not use logic. We make arguments that are absurd. And the next generation is becoming even more and more illogical. But specifically, I want to zoom in on Christians. I want to consider Christians. Not long ago, there was a Baptist church in Arkansas who put a sign out by the road. You know the signs that I'm talking about that always have a clever or funny saying on them? Well, the saying on this Arkansas Baptist church board said these words, reason is the greatest enemy that faith has. Let me just tell you, that could not be farther from the truth. Nothing is farther from the truth. In our passage today, we see Jesus using simple logic and simple reason in order to defend truth. Faith and reason are not opposites. In fact, they go hand in hand. What I would like to do for the next few minutes is give you three logical arguments that we can see here in this text. First, I want to show you evidence for the historical nature of Jesus' miracle working. Notice what the scribes have inadvertently proven here. The enemies of Jesus have inadvertently proven by their slander that Jesus has actually done something supernatural. Because if it wasn't supernatural, they wouldn't have had to accuse him of being filled with the power of the devil. Please don't overlook that. The fact that Jesus' enemies publicly and openly recognized that Jesus was displaying supernatural power is important. Since the the Enlightenment era, in philosophy and even in many pseudo-Christian realms, people have been trying to downplay the nature of the miraculous in the Bible. They will say things like, yes, the Bible is true, except the miracles. Those are just allegories. Those are just metaphors. Those are just stories meant to teach you a moral lesson. No, those are truths. And if those are not true, then the rest is not true. You cannot pick and choose which parts you want. But it is very important for us to know that the opponents of Jesus did not have that luxury. They could not merely reject the notion of the miraculous because they were observing it. They were seeing it every day in the life of Jesus. So when they come to him and they accuse him of being filled with the supernatural power of the devil, they are inadvertently proving that Jesus was a miracle worker. 
Let me give you a second logical argument here from this text, which is the evidence for the legitimacy of Scripture. Let me ask this question. Why would the gospel authors write about these events if they were not true? Consider that. Consider, what if, what if, and I don't believe this, please note that, what if the earliest Christian fathers were liars? And they were trying to make up a story, and they were trying to build a following. They were trying to get people to believe them. And they were passing out literature all throughout the known world. And as they go to a new Gentile city, they go to Corinth, they hand someone information that says, Jesus is a religious leader. But the religious leaders in his area believe him to be filled with the power of the devil. And beyond that, his own family thinks he's crazy. If you want to get a following, that's not how you do it. As many people in the modern era have claimed, they will say that the Bible was written to be a myth. It wasn't written to be intended and intended to be considered true. Well, if that's the case, you would never write this. You would never say that Jesus was confronted and accused of being filled with the devil. He would never be accused of being crazy if they're trying to create a myth about a legendary hero. No, the very fact that he is accused of these things brings legitimacy to the fact that this was written because it was true. These events actually happened. Third argument is this. I want to show you from the text what is known as the trilemma. One of the most common statements that is made about Jesus in the public arena today, because our modern society is pluralistic, it is politically correct, it is a culture that does not want to offend so they will say things like this well jesus he he's a good teacher i I think he's a great guy but he's not god jesus was a prophet some would even say he was a reformer he was a revolutionary he was a loving social creator of new policies new ideas but when you say that you have to ignore the majority of what jesus said You have to ignore his own claims about himself. So C.S. Lewis came up with an argument that has come to be known as the trilemma, which he presented in his book, Mere Christianity. Here's a quote from him. It's a relatively long one, so listen carefully. He said this, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. Here in Mark chapter 3, we see Jesus being accused of both insanity and evil. His family has declared that they think that he's crazy. He needs to come home. Jesus, it's time to come home now. 
I think you're, you've gone too far. On the other hand, the scribes declare Jesus is full of the power of the devil. Jesus, you are evil. No one should listen to you because you are wicked. Those are our options. He is either Lord, or he is a liar, or he is a lunatic. Consider the illogical statements that many people assume when they say that, well, Jesus was a good moral teacher. He was either born of a virgin, or he was not. He was either a miracle worker, or he was not. Either he died on the cross for sin, or he did not. Either he is, as he says he is, the only way to God, or he is not. Either he is going to judge the wicked, or he is not. Either he is God, or he is not. You can't have it both ways. You can't say that he was just a good moral teacher when he declares very openly that he is more than that. That he is the son of God. It is absolutely illogical to accept only the parts of Jesus that you like and ignore the rest. Let me continue by stating that logic and faith are not opponents. We've been getting after that, but I want to dig in even more on that. So if there is a logical, rational evidence here in the universe for the existence of God and the true nature of Jesus, if there is evidence like that, then why do people reject that evidence? Why is it that people can see everything that we see and they don't see that God is the creator? Well, what we know from Romans chapter 1 is that they do see It's evident. They have perceived it, but as it says in Romans chapter 1, they have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They have desired unrighteousness, therefore they push down, they they suppress that truth. But they do this because they are adhering to commitments to a God of their own imagining. Remember what Jesus told the Pharisees when we talked about John chapter 8. He said, why do you not understand what I say? Why do you not understand, Pharisees? And then he tells them why. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. It goes so far in contrast to what you want and what you desire, but my word is truth. Your word is not. Robert Jastrow, who was a dedicated agnostic, he was a esteemed astronomer. He wrote in his book, God and the Astronomers, concerning the fact that there is an extreme and irrefutable evidence in the universe that the universe had a beginning. Let Let me just pause for a second and explain that. Historically... In Greek philosophy, there was a a notion that the universe is eternal, that it has existed forever and ever and ever, and therefore there is no need for a God to create it because it's always been there. And, And atheists throughout time have latched onto that teaching. However, science over the last 50 years has proven beyond the shadow of a doubt, according to astronomers like this one, that there is irrefutable evidence that the universe has a beginning, which is baffling to the mind of someone who believes the universe must be all-powerful and eternal, like an atheist. He says in his book, Theologians generally are delighted with the proof that the universe had a beginning. Of course we are. But astronomers are curiously upset. Their reactions provide an interesting demonstration of the response of the scientific mind. And then he puts this in, in a little bracket. He says, supposedly a very objective mind. Remember, this is not a Christian writing. When evidence uncovered by science itself leads to a conflict with the articles of faith in our profession. It turns out 
that the scientist behaves the way the rest of us do when our beliefs are in conflict with the evidence. We become irritated. We pretend the conflict does not exist. Or we paper over it with meaningless phrases. Logic and faith are not opponents. They go hand in hand. What Jastro concluded in his book is this. It is not a matter of another year, another decade, or another moment, or measurement, or another theory. At this very moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the, the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived in his faith, in the power of reason, the story ends in a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He is about to conquer its highest peak. And as he pulls himself over that final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Let me tell you what he's saying in his book here. His argument is this. There is ample evidence and proof that the universe had a beginning. And the only logical information that we can determine from that is that it must have been created. It must have a creator. But he is still unwilling to recognize it. And he says the bad dream of a scientist is that we are going to realize that everything the theologians have been saying is actually true. Because the evidence points in that direction. You look at Albert Einstein, who, by the way, was not a Christian. He was a deist. He was upset when he came up with the theory of relativity. Did you know that? Most people who come up with a theory are excited. If you read the actual history of what's going on there, he was angry because it disproves the eternality of the universe. It had to have a beginning, and he did not like the fact that he had uncovered this reality in science. He desired to prove the universe was eternal going in reverse. This was frustrating to him. But logic and faith are not opponents. Even Richard Dawkins, who is probably right now the most famous atheist in the world. If you read his books, what you'll find out is he will constantly say, the evidence points to the fact that the universe has a beginning. But we have to discount all of the theories of God. But he doesn't give you a reason why you have to discount them. If the evidence points in that way, then true science, true logic would say, then if that is what the evidence is saying, then that is truth. Or at least truth within a high probability of being true. So here, what we are saying is that logic and faith are not opponents. Do you remember Antony Flew, the man to whom I introduce you? Antony Flew was an enemy of God. He was an enemy of the church. He was an enemy of theism. But in 2004, Antony Flew became a deist in the vein of Einstein. It shook. The reason you haven't heard of him is because no, no scientist wants to talk about him anymore. Do you know why? Because after he began to change his mind, he wrote a final book. I've got it right here. It's called, There Is a God. How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. The man who was considered the leading argument creator against the existence of God writes this very understandable short book to disprove all of his own arguments. And in it, he claims that everything he had ever argued, he argued based on bias rather on actual logic and scientific principle. And it's important for us to understand that because we live in a society where science is boss. It is king. And science says, science has proven. But science does not say anything and science cannot prove anything. Scientists say something. And if you have one scientist who has declared they believe this, you have just as many who have declared they believe something else. They do not agree on anything. So to say that science has proven something is quite simply absurd. 
for that and many other reasons. But the reason I want to bring up Antony Flew and this other man, Jastro, that I was referencing is because there is an evidence in the universe that is undeniable. In the last chapter of this book, There is a God, Antony Flew, who became a deist, not a Christian, who does not believe that God comes into the realm of man and does anything, he actually listens to arguments about the resurrection and says, going from what we have the evidence, it is more logical to say that the resurrection did occur than to say that it didn't. He's still not willing to make that leap and say that it's true, but he will say it's more logical to believe, that's the final chapter of this book, that, that there is more logical, rational, reason to believe that the the resurrection of Jesus Christ did occur, rather than to say that it didn't occur. So I come back to the question. If there's evidence, if there's logic, why do people deny it? Why do people come up with other theories? Why do people reject it? Well, because God created this world to point all evidence to him. But people don't want to hear that evidence. Because that means if he is real, if he is who he says he is, then that means we have to be submissive to him. We have to obey him. We have to follow his law. And it means that we have actually broken the law of the almighty creator of the universe. It means that we are actually responsible to pay him for the things that we have done against him. And that, quite simply, is too much to handle. I could give you quote after quote after quote of a famous scientist after famous scientist who says, the reason that I believe the things that I believe is either because I want to or because it gives me license to live how I want. Those are dangerous but true statements. They are not following the logic where it leads. They are not doing proper and good science. What they are doing is they are developing systems so that they can reject what is obvious to the world. I have three applications before we move on to point number two. And they are as follows. First, do not allow the world to convince you that they are logical and that faith is irrational. They're going to try to do that. Everything you see on television will try to say that. Everything that you try to do in any kind of academic realm will push you in that direction. But recognize that everything that you read in Scripture is in perfect alignment with all of the evidence that the the universe has to show us. Everything that you see around you, everything that God will ever display to us in nature, everything that will ever be seen through the Hubble telescope, everything that will ever come forth is in perfect alignment with what we see right here in the Scripture. It is truth. We live in a world where it's really easy to feel bullied and pushed around by people that have PhD or any other initials behind their name. It's very easy to feel that way. These people are educated. These people are intelligent. In America, we idolize education. But that does not mean that they are accurate. It does not mean that they are right. So we need to make sure that we don't feel bullied, that we are not convinced that they are logical and we are irrational. Application number two. Study apologetics. Study so that you can know how to defend your faith. As it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is in you. Here what we see Jesus doing in this passage is not starting with this logical argument, but when somebody accuses him of something falsely, he just uses very simple logic to tear that argument apart. Application number three, when speaking to unbelievers, don't always play defense. Do you understand what I mean? It's really easy for us to to hear the accusations that are made. Oh, 
faith is crazy. Faith is illogical. That's not scientific. But then we often will hear claims that are just absurd. So when you are speaking to an unbeliever, don't be afraid to ask pointed questions. Don't be afraid to point out inconsistencies. Don't be afraid to say, that statement is self-referentially absurd. Let me point out just a few. We're not going to dwell on this, but let me just point out a few things that are commonly said that you can quickly and easily refute because they are absurd. Here's a few. Someone will say to you, there is no truth. Just ask them, is that true? In order for them to make that statement, they must claim that they have some knowledge of what truth is. But in order for there to be truth, there must be truth. There cannot be no truth. When someone says all points of view are equally valid, ask them if your point of view is as valid as theirs, that not all points of view are equally valid. They say all points are equally valid. You say they are not. Are those points of view equally valid? Because you can't have it both and. When someone says that there are no absolutes, ask them how they could possibly know that statement to be true. If there are no absolutes, then you can never make an absolute statement. When someone says, well, that's true for you, but not for me. And by the way, this is very common. It's it's true for you. I'm glad you found happiness. I'm glad you found joy in your beliefs, but that's true for you, but it's not true for me. Do you know how crazy that sounds? Just ask them, give them a little parable like Jesus does. Just say to them something like, let's say you go into the bank and the bank teller says, you're about $200 overdrafted here. You owe us money. And you can say, oh, well, well, that's true for you. But that's not true for me. That doesn't work at the bank. That doesn't work in mathematics. That does not work with the IRS. That doesn't work in your marriage. What is true for them is true for you because there is no subjectivizing of the truth. What is true is true and what is not true is false. What about this one? Someone will say to you, the only way that you can ever know anything is through observation. Ask them how they can learn that that statement is true by observing it. That statement cannot be proven. It is self-referentially absurd. When someone accuses you of being narrow-minded because you believe that God exists and that everything else outside of the Bible is false, then ask them lovingly, I'm not saying to be a jerk about it, but lovingly point out the equality of your narrow-mindedness. You are saying, yes, I am narrow-minded. I believe there is one way to God. I believe that this is true. But what you are saying is the opposite. That humanism is true, that the eternality of the universe is true, that atheism is true, and that everything in exclusion of that is false. That is just as narrow-minded. So if you want to believe that I am narrow-minded, that's fine. But you are also narrow-minded. So if you would like to, you could point out to them the equality of your stance of narrow-mindedness. Now, what if someone says that all religions are roads that lead to the same God. Everything's going to the same place. Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, everything. doesn't matter as long as you've got a faith, as long as you're committed to it, then you're going to the same God. What if somebody tells you that? Well, you can't say that without breaking the most basic laws of logic. Jesus says he is the only way to God. Is that true? Because if it's not true, then Christianity is not true. Is that a road to God? Because if it is, it's the only road to God. Muhammad makes exclusive claims as well. Every religion basically claims that they are the exclusive way. So how could you possibly say the illogical thing that all of these statements that these faith 
these faiths make are false, and everything they're saying about exclusivity is false. However, those religions are true. You can't have it both ways. Not all roads lead to God. Those are just some rapid-fire arguments. We could go through tons and tons and tons of them. Those are called self-referentially absurd arguments. People make them all the time. Like I said, we're living in a generation where people don't know or use logic. So let's move forward now. I just want to remind you, as we close this section of the passage here, God has created the universe to reflect himself. Logic is not the enemy, but the friend of faith. Point number two, grace. This will be a very short point. First, I want you to notice that Jesus never uses apologetics here to call people to salvation. He's not using this as a call to salvation. He is using it as a defense. When somebody comes with an accusation against him, he uses this truth and logic as a defense against their claims. The reason I want to point this out is because evidence does not save anyone. Evidence can't save anyone. Just the amount of knowledge you could prove can't save anyone. Not many people had more evidence than the scribes and the Pharisees. They were first-hand witnesses of Jesus. They saw the miracles. They knew what Jesus was doing, and yet they did not believe. If you were saved, if you are here and you have been saved, it's not because you just got enough information, you just got enough proof to convince you that it was true. Yes, we do need to hear the gospel. We do need to know that Jesus died on the cross for our sin and that he rose again. But if you could take somebody back in a time machine... A skeptic who says, I don't believe in God, and you were able to say to them, what exactly is it that you reject about the life of Christ? Well, I don't believe anything about his birth. Take him back in a time machine, show him the birth. Is that going to make him believe? That couldn't. I don't believe the resurrection. You take him to the resurrection. You see Jesus who has died and then you see him being raised and he comes out of the tomb. You see him ascending into heaven. You go through this time in the time machine with this individual. Would that be enough to convince him? No, it wasn't enough to convince these people who were there. Many of the people who were there and saw these truths did not believe. There's a parable in the New Testament in the book of Luke about the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus tells a story of a rich man who died and he went into eternal torment. And this rich man who was suffering made a request that Lazarus, a poor man who had also died, would be sent back and literally be raised back to life, which, by the way, is a different Lazarus than the one that was raised back to life. He wanted him to be sent back to earth so that he could warn his family. He, this rich man wanted Lazarus to go back to earth and just warn the rich man's family about what torment comes after death if you don't honor God. But this is what it says. He was told, if they did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What if we were to go to a funeral home right now and God were in an amazing, miraculous way to do something that he has not done for 2,000 years? He was to raise somebody from the dead. Would that be enough proof for skeptics? No, it would not. Because evidence does not save anyone. The gospel is logical, but logic does not save. The gospel saves. We as believers, we can argue till we're blue in the face about the truth of the evidence of Scripture, about the truth of the nature of Jesus Christ, about everything that we see as evidence in the universe, but that's not where you start. If you want to share the gospel with somebody, 
share the gospel that Jesus Christ died for sinners. People who were undeserving, people who have rejected him and rebelled against him. And he, God sent his own son to die for people that were undeserving. So that all who would believe in him would be saved. Jesus raised again on the third day for our justification that we might be seen as right with God. We don't lead off with 10 proofs that evolution is false. We start off with Jesus died for sinners. The gospel saves. So I encourage you. Study hard. Be a diligent worker to know apologetics. You could study and become a great debater for the faith. You could be a great defender of the faith. But please know that that's not how you were saved. That is not how anyone is saved. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Just This is a crass analogy, but consider it. If you were to go to the funeral home right now and open the casket of a dead man... And you would begin to stand there over him and try to convince him there's a really great meal just on the other side of that wall. There's turkey and there's ham. There's delicious. I mean, can't you smell it? It's amazing. You're not going to convince him to get up out of the box and go eat food because that man is dead. No amount of evidence is going to convince him to move. But as it says in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our transgressions and sins and he made us alive in him. So if you are here today and you want To know more about all of these arguments, I encourage you to learn more about all the arguments. I encourage you to know about the truth. But most of all, I want to tell you, Jesus Christ died for sinners like you and like me. So, I want to ask you the question. Does Jesus, is he the Lord? Or is he a liar? Or is he a lunatic? If you're here today as Christians, we need to know that. We need to know this argument. We need to know where we stand on this. We need to know that if we are all in, if we're in on on what Jesus says, we're all in. We can't pick and choose any more than we can allow an atheist to pick and choose what Jesus has to say. And that means a lot for us. That means that we must be obedient to the whole of Scripture. It means that we must take seriously the commands of the Bible. That we must live the way that the Bible tells us to live. And that is an amazing thing. Because all the things that it tells us to do, they're not burdensome. They're not burdensome they're actually good for you and as you do them it actually improves everything it might make life hard yes it might make people hate you yes but you know what it does it makes you have joy in god so christians is he lord because if he is that means he is the commander in chief of your life live for him unbelievers is he lord or liar or lunatic you have to decide you can't you can't just keep going and saying that he is just a good guy He's just a good moral teacher. That in itself is absurd. Um, Next week, we're going to consider a lot more about this text. Uh, We're going to consider many different aspects of it. But today, I hope this was encouraging to you. I know that this is not a typical sermon. I don't usually quote this many atheists or agnostics in my sermons. But I do hope this was encouraging to you to remind you that everything we believe is true. Beyond that, everything that we believe is logical. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the great kindness that you have given to us, that we can use our mind to observe reality, to observe truth. I thank you that science is not our enemy. I thank you that you have given it to us as a gift that we can use to observe the creation that you have given to us. I thank you that logic always points to you and that reason always points to you. I pray, Father, that this would be encouraging to those of us in this room who have been attacked by many who believe that we are crazy.
for believing what we believe. Father, I thank you that it builds us up and gives us strength in, in our faith. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit today, we would fall deeper in love with you. And in doing so, we would desire to know more about you and see you in all that you have created. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. This time I would like to ask the worship team to come forward, and as they do, uh, I would just encourage you that at, on your way out, if you could take the hymnals that, you, uh, that you've been using and place them back on, there's a bookshelf out there in the foyer. No, no, oh, I'm sorry. Just leave them? Okay. We'll leave them here. Never mind. Thank you, Pastor Jim. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org. 